Hello, and welcome to Challenge Radio. Challenge Radio is the official podcast of Progressive Labor Party, PLP. PLP is a mass international, anti-racist, anti-sexist organization fighting to destroy capitalism. We organize workers, students, and soldiers worldwide to build for a communist revolution. See plp.org and follow us at PLP Challenge on Twitter and Instagram. Today, we'll be reading from the latest Challenge editorial, titled, U.S. Lapdog Israel Moves Towards Fascism. Editorial, U.S. Lapdog Israel Moves Towards Fascism, and yet another blow to the crumbling U.S.-led imperialist world order, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's hard-right coalition passed a bill to strip the Supreme Court of much of its power to check the country's moves towards open fascism. The U.S., home of genocide, slavery, Jim Crow, and lynchings to this day by the capitalist KKK cops, is sounding the alarm that its longtime ally is being, quote, degraded into a corrupt and racist dictatorship. Although workers in Israel erupted in protest, most are drinking the poison of liberal democracy and nationalism. Israel serves as the latest evidence that the U.S. imperialists' once ironclad grip is weakening amid an international crisis of capitalism. The dominant U.S. big fascists of finance capital are fending off enemies from without and within. After freely bullying the world since World War II, the finance capitalists are struggling to compete with rising superpower China while fending off a challenge from more domestically oriented capitalists, the small fascists fronted by Donald Trump. At the same time, Smaller capitalist countries are being destabilized by the sharpening inter-imperialist rivalry as it propels the world towards fascism and world war. The only antidote to this capitalist disaster is communist revolution by an international, multiracial working class. Progressive Labor Party fights for workers everywhere to break the chains of the boss's dictatorship. From the river to the sea, smash capitalist democracy. No nation, no exploitation only workers' liberation. At the heart of Israel's current controversy is a reform that eliminates the reasonableness doctrine, the Supreme Court's power to override officials' decisions as, quote, unreasonable. After the bill was passed, despite a stern warning from U.S. President Joe Biden, tens of thousands of workers walked off the job, called for a general strike, and blocked highways and airports. Thousands of military reservists have resigned, even active members of the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, infamous for their partnership with U.S. police and their mutual love of mass surveillance, torture, and racist terror, are threatening to abandon ship. The spectacle of protesters wrapping themselves in the apartheid Israeli flag is a reminder that these mass protests, no matter how militant, amount to dead-end reformism and toxic nationalism. Since Israel's birth as a Jewish state, in 1948, the Supreme Court has never called out the deportation, terrorization, or murder of Palestinians as unreasonable. In 2018, the Israeli parliament passed the gutter racist Jewish nation state law, 
which declared that only Jewish people had a right to self-determination in Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. It promoted Jewish settlements in the occupied territories and abolished Arabic as an official language. And all of this was perfectly reasonable, according to the Supreme Court, which sat on its hands. Liberal democracy is designed to mislead workers into embracing the capitalist ruler's dictatorship. All forms of nationalism, including the Israeli and Palestinian varieties, lead to capitalist oppression by different sets of bosses. Workers in every historically colonized country can attest to that. No honor among thieves. Israel plays both sides. In the battle days of the liberal world order, the U.S. exerted unchecked control over most of the world, with Israel as their bought-and-paid-for watchdog in the Middle East. Even as Israel displaced nearly a million Palestinians in 1948 and then kept expanding its illegal Zionist settlements across the West Bank, its apartheid regimen received more U.S. aid than any other country since World War II. But the era of unchecked U.S. supremacy is over. This year alone, China has made trade deals with Russia, strengthened ties with Brazil, and brokered a pact between U.S. nemesis Iran and Saudi Arabia, the linchpin of the oil-rich Arabian Peninsula. In June, President Xi Jinping issued a thinly-veiled threat to impose countermeasures to anything perceived as endangering China's sovereignty, security, and development interests. U.S. allies are caught in a high-risk balancing act, and Israel is no exception. Netanyahu has described the China-Israel alliance as a marriage made in heaven. Nearly $4 billion per year in U.S. blood money couldn't stop Netanyahu from tweeting, Israel is no longer another star in the American flag. The brazenly corrupt prime minister gave China access to Israel's advanced AI technology while dragging his feet and sending arms to Ukraine in its war with Russia, despite Biden's repeated requests. These acts represent a threat to the U.S. and a net game for China. They spell war for workers everywhere. U.S. mouthpieces voice imperialist dilemma. The U.S. big fascists are agonizing over how best to deal with their racist friend, while New York Times columnists Thomas L. Friedman and Nicholas Kristof toyed with proposing that the U.S. cut off military aid to Israel. The Brookings Institute's Nathan Sachs argued that the U.S. should act with a vision based on promoting regional stability and integration and shaped by the U.S. competition with China and Russia. The boss's mouthpieces have no shame, do they? In fact, the U.S. has of late expanded its military exercises with Israel. In early 2023, as Sachs notes, an exercise called Juniper Oak, the largest ever, sent a message that local partners such as Israel remain a cornerstone of the U.S. strategy for, quote, future crises, even as U.S. resources are stretched thin in Ukraine and East Asia. The U.S. imperialists are caught in a bind. To allow Israel's lurch toward open fascism with no pushback would be to lose even more credibility as a rules-based power, as if, and drive nation swing states closer to China. By giving a green light to even more ruthless oppression of the Palestinians, it could jeopardize U.S. dreams of a Saudi-Israeli normalization. 
a pact that might limit future China inroads. On the other hand, publicly defending Israel would risk losing the U.S. boss's regional partner in crime and give China more maneuverability in the Middle East. It's a contradiction they cannot solve without war. Given the volatility of U.S. imperialism and the boss's state of chaos and disunity, it's hard to say exactly what will happen next. But two things are for certain. First, the capitalists are always driven by profit and power. Second, to secure that profit, they will inevitably go to war. Our class will pay the price with our lives. What is to be done? We must build a mass working class movement, calling on all workers, Jewish, Palestinian, Muslim, Christian, Black refugees from Sudan, and Etruria, to reject capitalist oppression and racist division. PLP fights for one communist world where we rule for the entire working class. That is liberation. Workers must smash capitalism and break away from the clutches of rising fascism. Democracy soaked in Palestinian workers' blood. When hypocrites bemoan the erosion of democracy in Israel, they're talking about the same democracy that expelled and massacred Palestinian families, the same rule that birthed and bred Zionist apartheid in Israel-Palestine, the same system that bars 5.5 million Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip from voting in their phony elections. Instead, they are murdered by starvation wages, mass unemployment, and bullets. We cannot be fooled by the boss's deceptive framing of democracy versus dictatorship. What pathetic theater. Liberal democracy and fascism are two sides of the same murderous capitalist coin. Every Israeli raid, demolition, and killing of Palestinian workers has been enabled by the U.S. bosses. Israel pulls the trigger. The U.S. pays for the guns. That's why the greater danger in Israel-Palestine is not Netanyahu's band of openly vile fascists, but the friendly, liberal, lesser evil fascists who will lead our class to slaughter. In this podcast episode, a comrade references Israel-Palestine as a product of settler colonialism developed after World War II. Although we agree that anti-Palestinian racism in Israel-Palestine is a product of settler colonialism, we at PLP also recognize the situation as a result of inter-imperialist rivalry, as this language is the sharpest way to detail whose interests exactly are being served. And we want to remind our listeners that like all forms of racism, anti-Palestinian racism is a ruling class ideology meant to divide the working class and is harmful to the interests of all workers that reside in Israel-Palestine, as well as all workers all over the world. Smash racism, this whole daggle rotten system has got to go. And joining me today is a couple of comrades who have you know, some direct opinions and experience 
up the struggle in that area of the world. So I'd like to welcome them on. Yeah, let's get into it. We brought on a comrade who has, in fact, traveled to that part of the world. Um, Well, first of all, the editorial talks about the recent decisions regarding the Supreme Court in Israel. You know, we heard about it. I think it's important that we try to understand these things, you know, from a very communist perspective. And, you know, a good way to really do that is to have some firsthand experience of that part of the world. And with that in mind, you know, I've invited on a comrade, a veteran comrade of ours who has that such experience. So, comrade, if you'd like to explain a little bit about yourself and your history regarding Israel-Palestine and the makeup of the workers' movement in that part of the world without giving too much specifics. Okay, well, to make a long story short, I got my start in political activity back in the 60s when I was opposing the Vietnam War. came from a Jewish background, and I was at a temple where I was grew up where instead of doing traditional religious thing, bar mitzvahs, uh, they would, we would take, go to Hebrew school, and then they would send us for a whole summer to the state of Israel. This was uh, year 1968 when I first went there. The way they taught us uh, was that Israel was, well, it was a haven for Jewish people because I had some relatives, of course, many Jews did, that were killed by the Nazis, and and it was it was kind of like best portrayed there. They described it as portrayed by the movie Exodus, if you ever seen that, with Paul Newman, I think, was in it. Um, that showed you know how the Jews had to escape the Nazis, and Israel was the savior of the Jews because they were allowed to go to Israel, and then they had to fight the British a little bit. And but the main point that I'm trying to make is that I I was taken in by the I would say propaganda of the time and believing the what they told me about these Zionist programs and how, for example, the uh, people that were living there really were not taking care of the land. They didn't do much for the crops. The Israelis came and the, or the Jews came and they brought olive trees and they and they they basically made the the land bloom. I mean, it was as if no one was living there. This was a kind of a um, almost a trope that had started my understanding of the concept of Zionism kind of started out with the original Zionist guy by the name of Theodore Herzl, who, who basically, you know, said, well, we want to help land for the Jews. And, uh, you know, things were not doing very well in the Europe, Eastern European countries where a lot of Jews came from. And, and, and that I would include my family in that. My family ended up coming to the United States in the late 1800s. But, you know, Israel was uh, was an option or the Palestine area was an option and they made it out to seem like, well, no one was really living there or they weren't taking the care of the land well and plenty of space and we could even push the people aside. But anyway, I believed the propaganda and I went there and I enjoyed going there. Uh, and I met a lot of, I met different people and I came back with a positive picture, but but my picture was basically incorrect. Uh, and, I, and having learned a lot since that many years ago visit, I ended up coming back uh, under the auspices of a, a group that went to, that sends people to Palestine, to that area, Israel-Palestine, to see the conditions that exist in that area. And I went back last year to see uh, for my own, for myself, what the situation exists is at this time. I'd heard a lot about what was going on there in terms of the conditions under which the Palestinians are living and 
it's a settler colonial regime that's almost what you could call similar to what the uh, Europeans did uh, to the Native Americans back in the Pilgrims' days and stuff. In other words, um, taking over on the basis that we're doing them a favor or we're, we're, it's a good thing, you know. I learned a lot about the history of, of the, you know, when I went there in terms of not just experiencing the having gone there at, on this trip and going into some of the uh, areas in the West Bank, but also learning how there were places where there were thousands of Palestinians were living that they were run out of their houses. They were driven out and back in the 1948 and since then. So I learned that because we saw actually saw some of the villages that had, were uh, people were driven out. They were they basically were shot at. They were killed. Some killed. So just kind of reminded me of, of that famous Trail of Tears uh, that you hear about with uh, President Jackson. I mean, it, something similar in terms of that has happened in the last 50, 60 years or 70 years, I should say. So that's where I was coming from. I wanted to find out more. Um, it kind of uh, gave me a clearer picture as to how, um, you know, what the what's going on now. It's really bad in terms of not just, I would say, may, uh, for sure for the Palestinians, but but I don't think the Israelis realize that they are in a, uh, on the wrong side of history, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's a, a good introduction. Just hearing the comrade mention the narrative or anti-Palestinian racist propaganda also reminded me of um, a lot of anti-Black racism. So yeah. just seeing this tool of racism not only being used to divide workers, but trick one set of workers to participate in the destruction of another set of workers. And that's significant in how capitalism works. So I think that it's important for workers, especially when we think about nationalism as an issue that a lot of times people feel like it's hard to conceptualize what these issues have to do with them. And really hearing that as well as the the history around Native workers uh, just shows this pattern that these imperialist powers use when it comes to racism. And you mentioned a bit of a leftward, you know, turn in your thinking and your politics. Um, I'm wondering, and, and you have been, you know, organizing as a part of Progressive Labor Party for some decades now. I wonder how, you know, your experience of organizing within the party helped pull that your your analysis of the situation to the left. I think that being around PLP for many years, the line has has uh, advanced over the over time, from you know the '60s where we were a fraternal party of the Chinese Communist Party to realizing that they, they had sold out to some degree when they invited Nixon over. But even equally with that is the concept as mentioned by our young comrade about the issue of nationalism. I think this this uh, nationalism is probably as poisonous as anything, and it's—I mean—that's what Zionism is. It's Jewish nationalism, basically saying that we're, you know, we're separate, we're above, we're different, we can't ally with other people. I mean, it, reading history and what happened in Nazi Germany, the Germans were one to this master race concept, and they were one to the um, to believing they were the best. And Hitler was not happy when Jesse Owens won the won in the Olympics, but. They were one to that, and I think that's largely a lot of what's happened in Israel. The the Jewish people in Israel have been one to their 
you know, so-called basically superiority that they have the, the, the edge and they're better and, and they deserve to have what they've got. The heck with the Palestinians. They don't know how to grow olive trees or whatever, even though the Israelis knocked down their olive trees. So, you know, and then I might add there is racism in Israel uh, within the um, Jewish population. I mean, you have the what's called the Ashkenazi Jews who are European, of which I guess I could say I'm in that group. There's also the Sephardic Jews come from Morocco and, and Arabic countries where they are a little darker skinned. So they're considered less uh, probably it's the same level as the Ashkenazi Jews. Then you even have the Ethiopian Jews. And it's interesting because when I was there, uh, you know, a lot of the police that I saw were black. I would imagine they had come from Ethiopia. It's interesting that that's the role they're playing. It, it's, there's that division. So within even Jew, the Jewish population. But the Palestinians and the Arabic people are, are treated the worst, obviously. It seems, you know, very clear how... You know, racist and nationalist ideology really work hand in hand to divide and, and oppress these populations. It plays right into the hands of the bosses. You know, if I can go back to kind of referencing the editorial a little bit, I mentioned at the beginning that there's been all this upheaval in recent weeks um, across Israel Palestine related to this decision regarding the Supreme Court and taking away this quote unquote reasonableness doctrine. Wondering, you know, for our comrade that's traveled there, but, you know, it's for anybody really why we see this happening now at this moment. I mean, what's really going on in that level of the world and, you know, how it connects to the international situation that, you know, this was in place, you know, for decades essentially, and now it's being stripped away and any kind of potential liberal democratic veneer is being wrenched away. I mean, I guess what it means in um, economic and political context. The demonstrations that are against this supposed change in the Supreme Court in Israel, there were, you, you notice that there were almost zero Palestinians participating. People that were protesting, the, the Jewish population that was Jewish Israeli population that was protesting, didn't like some of the me measures that the this right wing group has been doing. I mean, it's interesting that they're moving. In, uh, I would say they're going closer to Afghanistan in some ways. I mean, they're terms of their the way they're treating women there was just an article i just read today about how the women couldn't even get out of bus even though they're supposed to be able to get out of bus when they want to they couldn't get out of bus because there was all men in the bus they no women about this bus i mean it's ridiculous but this is something that that's going on now i mean they're moving toward a uh, a, a situation where women are say more second-class citizens and then the israelis are not happy with that and the and the they want to uh, curtail this this Supreme Court, which has seen this bulwark against uh, some of the more right-wing policies. But the thing is, you have to understand that the right-wing po the policies that have been going on have been, um, uh, you know, extremely anti-Palestinian. And the Supreme Court has done crap to help the Palestinians. I mean, liked by the liberal Israelis, but they're, for example, you might have a Palestinian family that wants to build a house and they have to get the permit. And maybe one out of a hundred is allowed to build a house in the areas of the West Bank. This we're talking about West Bank, not even in the Israel proper. And the Israeli Supreme Court maybe allowed one out of a hundred. I mean, that's how they are. They they're not exactly pro Palestinian by any stretch of the imagination. So it's just interesting seeing that this is more of a liberal 
thing that where the it's almost like the the country is similar to the U.S. in the sense that you get right wing, the left wing, so called left wing, but the left wing is not any well, a lot better in terms of their role in terms of what they play in terms of building nationalism and racism. The, the Palestinians don't realize this is not nothing to do with us because it's not going to change their situations. Yeah, what I'm thinking about and what you're alluding to or to sharpen a little bit what you're alluding to is a failure of liberalism uh, where it sounds very familiar where you mentioned having the of color Palestinians or darker skinned maybe Palestinians or darker skinned Israelis are just cops that are not how people typically imagine Israeli people remind me of how we have more black, Latin and queer cops in the U.S. And that still isn't a solution to the oppression that black, Latin women, all workers are facing all over. Um, So I think what you're getting at is this failure of liberalism that opens the door or as some comrades put it, uh, liberalism is the, the midwife to fascism, where because these liberal leaders, these liberal misleaders weren't able to deliver or come through, not just for these Israeli workers, but also Palestinian workers. Now you're seeing this open door of right wing fascists that are coming through the door, but also it's important for us to take to the task that it's also a internationalist communist movement that's missing or, or party that's missing that could push to unite Palestinian workers and Israeli workers. Um, because, you know, I'm sure that's the same thing that we're experiencing or seeing that we're trying to talk to workers about the dangers of Donald Trump being indicted in the U.S. and that that's not a win for workers, but something that's alluded to something that's more dangerous for us because that's showing a greater threat of fascism. So, uh, but a lot of workers feel like, what does this have to do with me? Or they feel very desensitized by electoral politics because of the failures of liberals or that lack of a communist movement. So that's what I'm thinking and, and why we're talking about this right now. And it's important for us to to pay attention to, especially because connected to Israel, uh, we allude to the U.S. and Israel being partners in crime historically. And we're seeing this shift or them being partners is in danger if you have this actual threatening right wing movement that could jeopardize that. Like if these liberals don't get not only them in check, but also workers on their side, um, it's a danger for for U.S. imperialism as well. So for me, looking at this, I think that was really alarming to see and to read and for us to call out and speculate that this is another sort of proof that the U.S. empire is in jeopardy um, or taking a lot of blows. And that is dangerous, not just for our class in the U.S. or Israel, but all over uh, with these different factions of, of the ruling class having this infighting and um, instability. Yeah, I, I believe a lot of, I'll say maybe second tier capitalist powers, global capitalist powers are really hedging their bets right now. And it's definitely working both angles between the, the two main rivals, imperialist rivals of the US and China about who they can get the better shake from and definitely playing out both sides and it does create for a lot more instability. 
which is playing itself out in in these these smaller proxy conflicts. Yeah, it's, I mean, you could bring up what's going on in Niger. So the U.S. is losing control in, in area, certain areas. And, and I think we should talk about this a little bit. How, how do we deal with the Israeli situation in terms of what is our approach? I mean, in terms of our, our attitude and what we say in, in this country, and we could talk a little bit about some stuff we've been doing here, raising these issues. But uh, one of the things that just you know was in the news was the Democrats, a bunch of them, about twenty of them, I think, came went to Israel and were you know were gung ho for Netanyahu and buddy buddy with him. I mean, it's just sickening. And these are supposed to be liberal Democrats. I mean, does that point out their you know where they're at? I mean, I think we can learn from that uh, in terms of the role they're playing. And, and the guy that was the main spokesman is this guy, Hakeem Jeffries. I guess he would be the Speaker of the House if uh, it wasn't uh, for the Republicans having the majority or something. So uh, he's pretty high up dude. And he is the spoke saying how great uh, Netanyahu is. It's like sickening. It's grotesque. So much for Democrats being this uh, of the people type of group. My experience, I mean, having seen what exactly is happening to people there, it really hits home to me about how grotesque uh, this uh, capitalist system is. We went to a number of areas around the West Bank, and we went to a place called um, Mazafar Yasa, Yasa, I think is the name, Yada. Uh, it is a outpost uh, where there are about 18 communities in southern West Bank that is being decimated. They bulldoze the school. They, they are trying to tear down communities one by one they're claiming it's a they wanted to use it as a free fire zone or something it's a little area in the southern part of west bank i mean i actually went there and it's a terrific people that are just trying to farm the land and teach their children and it's really horrible what's it what, what they're doing but you know this people don't always know about what's going on i mean you might read about it in some obscure leftist newspaper but you don't hear about it as that much in the u.s in the press our regular press. I mean, it should be on the front page of the news what they're doing to people. Having, you know, you go there and you and you see the walls that are, you know, 30 feet high, concrete walls. They make the wall on the U.S. border with Mexico look like nothing. I mean, they're just incredible. These walls that are preventing people from even getting to land that they're supposedly have, they can do some farming with. They have to, instead of going five minutes to to their land, it takes them a couple hours to get through the checkpoints to get around these walls, like a prison. Uh, just to give you an idea, I mean, I went to the way that the, they've divided people there. They have um, Hebron, which is a, where the tomb of the patriarchs is. We went to where there's a mosque on one side and a, a temple on the other, tomb of the patriarchs. We went to where the mosque was, went inside, and you could see the there were like pockmarks on the marbles pillars inside this mosque where this um jewish uh, settler had killed like 20 palestinians uh i don't know what 20 years ago or something it, they you can still see the pockmarks on those on those columns it's very sobering to see that that people were actually killed in that spot and then you also have this situation just to give you an idea of the kind of thing we saw um they have the settlers in living in this old city of hebron on top of where the Palestinians live. So Palestinians are living on a certain level in this in this old city. They have old walk 
ways and that sort of thing. Then you have the settlers living on top and they don't interact. The settlers actually, they, they have these walkways that where the Palestinians are walking below and the, they have the, the settlers are throwing garbage and rocks on top of the where the where the Palestinians are walking. I mean, it's absurd. You have these Palestinians have set up some mesh and some stuff to catch the garbage and the rocks, but they don't always catch everything. But it just gives you an idea. They're living right on top of each other, but they can't even. There's that racist non-communication that keeps people from even, you know. And 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 I'll tell you another interesting um, about these settlements. They have settlements that are you know wide variety of people, but you know some Israelis that have been there for a long time. But they they're actually bringing some of the Jews that are refugees from Ukraine into Israel and saying, "Oh, we've got a place for you to live. You can come to this settlement and live." So it's like using these people from Ukraine for their nefarious settlement plan. So having been there and seeing this up front, it's just it's mind-boggling what they're doing. So it just gives you an idea of the nationalist racism that that is overgrown. This, you know, I mean, it's called they call it settler colonialism, and apartheid is an excellent um, word for it. You know, there's the question posed to you and I. And I'm sure many of our comrades, you know, in here and in, in other parts of the world have been involved, you know, in struggle that really try to bring these issues to the fore. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of share on some of the experience that you make, what you've seen there, and what you understand about that part of the world relevant in the area of the world that we're at, you know, in terms of class struggle. Uh, we have having this struggle in the our area, the south side of Chicago, south suburbs, um, where this young man by the name of Hadi, was beaten severely by these police in this town called Oak Lawn, Illinois, uh, about a year ago, and they beat the heck out of him and almost killed him. He had brain bleed, he had broken pelvis, just for running away. He had a gun in his bag or something. He didn't use it. He's just trying to get away. They just beat the hell out of him. So the thing is that... Still questionable if he had a gun. I, I, <laughs> if you trust the cops narrative. Sorry to jump in right there. But. A lot of them just because he ran, basically. Palestinian young man in this town. So there's been a struggle every month, event every month to protest and demand the uh, cop that beat him to be charged. After about a, 11 months, one of the cops has been charged with something related to that of the three that beat him. So, but that has been going on with the people that people involved with that have been um, a lot of people from that area. You have a variety of age groups that are a lot of Palestinian people live in that area of the south suburbs, and then other people have come in from other places. Uh, there's groups that are from the south side of Chicago. There's a group that's so called socialist. There's other groups. So, but the main thing is that it's been a variety of people that have come to demand action on this and then up and the and the thing and just to mention that there was another case now that's come up as well where a young man was run over by a, a woman in the same town a young palestinian man in re, uh, last i think a month a month or two ago uh she was driving probably drunk but you know you just ran him over when he was got out of his car and she wasn't even charged at all i mean basically or whatever charges for speeding it was nothing she he mur she basically killed this guy and did not and has not been charged much. So that's added on to this struggle. We just had a rally 
um, at the courthouse or last week uh, to raise the issue of this woman should be charged uh, for something pretty much more serious than speeding in this in this particular case. Uh, but they let they basically said, oh, you're you don't think you're driving drunk? Well, OK, you can go. Goodbye. They didn't do a thing. The cops there. So with the point being that this another case of where the U.S. Uh, cops here playing a racist role in regard to this case. But also, you know, I think one thing we need to bring up is uh, whenever I go to these things and, I, and I, I've been going pretty much mostly every month, whenever I go to these things, I want to raise the issue of how this relates to the situation going on in Palestine, for example. And I, I've brought this up a number of times. Unfortunately, recently there was a challenge article, Charlie front page article about this situation about what happened in Oak Lawn and then, and I'm glad we have this editorial because we did pass that out, we'll pass it out again, bringing up the issue of Palestine and how this is an international thing, inter-imperialist rivalry and, and racism is combined here, bringing it, bringing it home to a small suburban community in south side of Chicago is, is important to bring two things together for greater understanding. Connecting to the bigger struggle against capitalism through communist revolution, I would say. I'm curious about your work specifically. I know you said earlier, I would like to hear more about the work that you've been doing, whether it's since the 60s or it was great, the recent examples that you brought up uh, because the bosses try to make it seem, or like you were mentioning, where we have these borders in Israel-Palestine on the U.S.-Mexico border. But we have workers that are migrating and have always been migrating. I'm just wondering, one, what do you say to workers, whether it's when you're in Israel-Palestine, about the racism that they're experiencing and why we need to push for an internationalist communist revolution? Or if it's in Chicago, where... Arab workers are being assaulted and terrorized by the police or even what I've seen in my area, which is New Jersey, where you sometimes have black workers that are calling for more police, you know, so where you also have workers that are internalizing this racism and thinking that racist police terror is a solution to these issues that we're seeing in our community. So I know you mentioned the the rally and also challenge. Are there any other ways that you try to put our line out there or try to make pushing for communism and internationalist communist revolution and party comprehensive? Because I think for a lot of us, sometimes it feels hard to do or like it's disconnected or that you're sort of coming left field in these struggles or with these extreme or these examples of extreme repression that workers are facing. So what role have you and other comrades played, whether it's in the free Palestine or the anti-police terror movement in Chicago? I think we have to do is connect with people on an individual basis, which we've started to do. We're getting to know some people individually and have their information contact information to um engage them a little bit more in discussion so there are people that we are starting to work talk to a little bit more closely and have been seen and liked the paper so i think that's 
start. I think the group that's mainly organizing this thing was the Arab American. I forget the name of the exact group. But it's the Arab American rights group, I think. I'm yeah. more so mean, what line do you put out there? Like I've heard from comrades that visited or built with people around this anti-Zionist movement yeah. to push for a two-party state. I kind of came around the party or I did come around the party on a, a college campus and you have these free Palestine student orgs. You don't hear like that kind of sounds again, far left pushing for a two party state. So is that a line that you put out there, even multiracial unity to these groups uh, that are, that are more nationalist or do you, you know, what, what are the lines that you, you put out there in these reform movements as a, a, a member of PL? I think I, I'm approaching it by wanting to raise the issue of multiracial unity and Jewish Israelis have every reason to not want to go along with their, even though they don't realize it. I mean, I, I think trying to bring up the issue of what is the future of that area and, and the Israeli government is on the losing side. And ultimately, if there's multiracial unity between the Arab and Jewish workers, that they could have a better society, organized communist society. But that's going to take some time. It's interesting that you bring that up because a lot. I mean, you have, we are involved in reform groups. We're not. We're not organizing our own reformist group. We are. We're with, involved within these reform groups. So, for example, there's a group that I'm with. That's they have the meetings that are based in the south side of Chicago, and they're. Uh, they're involved with this and they're involved with other things around the issues of various things, uh, issues of racism and and that I'm involved with them and I try to put forward a line and distribute paper with that. Uh, there's also this um, group I'm I just mostly involved with online. It's called the JBP, Jewish Voice for Peace, which they're, you know, they're kind of a, a they're a liberal, more um, probably I would say you know, progressive kind of group, you know, they're, but, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to really get to know the people there because a lot of them don't even live near where I live on the South side and mostly in the other parts of town, but they they have these zoom meetings and I haven't really engaged them, but I need to do that. And, and it's interesting to bring up, well, how do you approach the situation there? Uh, long-term, obviously we want to get rid of capitalism and near, work, near. workers should ally together. But what the approach of these groups is, for example, the Jewish voice of peace there, I think their main focus is BDS, which is this uh, boycott, defest, um, sanction uh, movement, which is more, it's a liberal movement that, uh, you know, you could argue, well, you know, it, it worked in somewhere, but, <laughs> you know, but it's long, I mean, it may force the Israelis to adjust their policies a little bit, possibly, but it's not the long-term answer by any means. I mean, but it's a liberal answer, um, and that's what these groups are doing because they're not they don't see uh getting rid of capitalism as the um and, and capitalism being the reason you know if you read history you know there was a leftist movement due to zionist nationalism it, the leftist movement that tried to align arab workers and jewish workers back in like 90 years ago roughly that unfortunately was nixed by the nationalists, by the Zionists, even the Zionist workers' organizations. So uh, they had a very right-wing approach 
yeah, I think there's, you know, a very intentional reason on the part of the leadership of these organizations, at least to not make it a class question and to not go beyond liberal reforms and to not go beyond nationalism because they're all beneficiaries essentially at the end of the day of this system. So I think that's really where we come in as communists, as comrades of this party to be in these spaces. So like a lot of people who gravitate, they gravitate to what's there. And, you know, I think they can be one to see the, the contradictions and limitations of reform under this system and could be one to more revolutionary line. If one, if we're there and two, if we're being bold enough to bring these things up, bring these ideas up, revolutionary ideas up and engage with workers and, and create that kind of co conversation and dialogue that advances to a, you know, a much larger movement, but any kind of closing statements? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to have this discussion because I think that it's an, I mean, it's an issue that I've been concerned about. And I, I, I think we, we, we have the, we have the possibility of giving good direction to some of these movements to the extent where we can get to know people more. I mean, I, the responses we've gotten from distribution of the paper and comments we people have made i think at one point one of our younger comrades came up came out you know just gave a good speech after one of the events that they had at the police board meeting that we've been going to on a monthly basis he was very um very strong about uh our line and i, I think it was real well received uh and i think there's a potential there and I, as i said we we're scratching the surface probably in terms of people that we could get to know better in this uh, this struggle. Uh, but we do have a few people that we, we started to get to know. So hopefully that will it will improve and expand. Definitely. Yeah, I just um I'm just thinking that sometimes reading the editorial or re re more so reading the news, mainstream news and these developments around inter-imperialist rivalry can sometimes feel destabilizing but I really implore people or want to empower people empower workers more so to keep at it continue trying to learn and gain insight from these developments getting together to talk about these different developments because it doesn't destabilize us but strengthen us it strengthens our understanding so that we can know what's going on in the world you know be careful and cautious especially talking about how fascism one of the most popular forms that many of us know in in modern day history in um nazi germany came to play sometimes people say there were workers or there were signs to see building up to this full-blown fascism. So this article is another example in, in our take at speculating how the U.S. or inter-imperialist rivalry is building towards, building towards fascism or full-blown fascism. So just encouraging people to keep on, keep on reading and, and uh, to stay motivated that we can win and the more that we know and, and work and study together, we have a better chance of winning and, and learning the boss's weak points. This doesn't mean that they can't be destroyed uh, when we read articles like these. So that's just my, my last thought. Definitely agree that the stakes are high, but 
being a part of a party and studying these things collectively and analyzing history. It doesn't give us an exact road map, but it, it definitely helps us along to build our struggle. And like you said, find these capitalists, find these bosses' weak points, and, and learn from the old movement, learn from the failures of the old communist movement. I think you know a lot of those lessons. They're in a position to unfortunately get repeated in lots of ways because the way that general leftist forces still kind of cling to ideas that have been proven to be to to be a dead end for workers, especially in the form of nationalism. So once again, this has been Challenge Radio. Thank you all for the station. And if you want to see more articles like this, editorials like this, please remember to visit plp.org and see you next time. All right, thanks. Thank you. Great. Challenge, put out like PLP. Fight back wildcat, read all about it. Get your challenge here. Challenge the communist paper. That's right, the communist paper. Fight back wildcat, read all about it. Get your challenge here. Fight back while